Okay, so today's scripture reading comes uh, from Genesis chapter 11, and this is what the scripture says. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech, and as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. So they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from all over the earth and they stopped building the city. And that is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Don't worry, this is going to make sense here in a minute. For those of you who are like, wait a second, what is all of that about God confusing language? We'll get to that. Uh, the, 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 the story of the Tower of the Babel is a story within a story. Meaning if we're going to understand the wisdom of the message here, we need to have a handle of the basic plot of Genesis and where Babel fits into that larger story, the meta-narrative as we call it. So last week we left off with God cleansing the world of evil through the flood. So the story of the flood is actually really filled with hope. We found that because uh, Noah and his family, they find favor with God and they're spared from the judgment. And so the story ends uh, on this really hopeful picture of Noah and his family stepping off of the ark onto the dry ground where God blesses them with the same blessing that he gave Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Notice uh, Genesis 9 verse 1 says this, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That's a verbatim repeat of Genesis 1 verse 28. In other words, God is saying, hey, let's start fresh. Let's try this again. The rampant evil that had spread to all of humanity in Genesis 6, it does not have to destroy you. It does not have to rob the world of the beauty and the goodness that God created with. Again, the emphasis that I see here in Genesis is actually God's love and it's God's patience with humanity. He's enthusiastically calling rebellious people back to, to his vision for flourishing and for peace. And uh, if you remember, the, the promise, uh, the blessing, is marked with a sign, and that sign is the rainbow. And God says, every time you see a rainbow, it's a symbol. It's a symbol to remind you of my promise to bless and to keep you. And I don't know if you were paying attention, but uh, last Sunday afternoon, um, there was this incredible rainbow. In fact, this is the only time in my entire life that I've ever preached on the, the story of the flood. And then later that day, there was this big storm that rolled through. Maybe you remember. And the brightest double rainbow I have ever seen uh, just was uh, filling the sky. And I was there with my wife and kids. Uh, there you can kind of see it. Uh, it was just incredible. I was 
there with my wife and kids and we were just standing in awe and just thanking God for the blessing and remembering that. It just felt like God was seeing us and that his promise was true. So after that, Noah and his family, they, they were like humanity's best shot of getting it right. They were the ones who were humble before God. They were faithful to obey him. And so that's why out of everyone in their generation, God said he favored Noah and he decided to start fresh or try again with him and his family line. But sadly, uh, they fall short as well. Just a few verses later, Noah gets drunk from the vineyard that he makes and his son Ham does something really sketchy, probably some kind of incest actually, it's kind of gross. And we're right back to where we started, right? The, the problem of sin, the reality of sin is like a parasite that's infecting all of humanity. And Babel is what comes immediately following Noah and Ham's failure. Babel is the story of their descendants. So if you're like me, when you read this page to page to page in Genesis, you're like, okay, Lord, mercy, like we get it. Humanity is broken and the results are, are, are brokenness and wickedness and evil. Can we please fast forward to the part where you make things right and you bring redemption? Or at least that's how my mind goes when I read the text. So we understand that we're in a bind, but God, we would appreciate it if you would emphasize the highlights and not the lowlights of this story. Uh, but the reality is that the Bible's not edited like that. The Bible's not edited like a Western screenplay or something like that. It's actually filled with stories like the Tower of Babel um, that we'd probably prefer to just sort of gloss over or we wish that weren't even there in the first place. However, the Tower of Babel is an integral story. It's an important warning about what happens in the world where sin is completely unchecked. And that's the, what we see here in, in, in the story. So if the fall is the, the first rebellion in Genesis 3, then Genesis 6 is the story of when rebellion spreads to all humanity. And then in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel is when rebellion gets organized. It gets organized. So we're no longer just talking about individuals who are walking away from God and the sort of general chaos that ensues. We're talking about people actually coming together and coordinating their efforts to architect a corrupt system in rebellion against God. And that's the tragic story of Babel, but it ends really good. It ends on a high note of God's bringing redemption. So very quickly, here's how the story goes. Everyone at the, at the beginning of chapter 11, everyone's speaking the same language, and they begin to migrate east and they settle in a place called Shinar. Now, a uh, couple of yellow flags already. Shinar is where Cain, in Genesis 4, built the first city that he called Enosh, and he named it after his son. So you might be thinking to yourself, what's the problem with that? Well, it's very subtle for us as modern readers, but uh, in the world of Genesis, Eden, the garden, is in the west. So when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, they camp out on the eastern border. And then after Cain rejects God's offer to restore him and to teach him the basics of worship, he begins to leave God's presence and journey, travel eastward. So in the biblical vision and all throughout Genesis, the further east you get from Eden, the further you've actually walked away from God's original design and you've walked away from his presence. Next, Cain's city is a counterfeit garden. Remember, God had designed Eden to be a home to be a home where humans would enjoy him and worship him forever. And now Cain is saying, you know what? 
no thanks. I'll, I'll build myself a home on my own terms, in my own way, apart from God's presence. So Cain's city is an act of defiance. And third, he's seeking to build a legacy around his ego. Now, by contrast, Seth models acceptable worship and humble dependence in God by, by, by calling on the name of the Lord, like it says in chapter 4, verse 26. He's, Seth and his godly line are calling on the name of the Lord. But notice what Cain does. Cain is elevating the name of Enosh. So he's not hoping in the Lord. He's hoping in his line. He's hoping in his son's future legacy. So there's nothing wrong with wanting good things for your kids, obviously. The problem is with Cain's neglect of God and his neglect of worship of God, with a, which he has replaced with an obsession for making a name for himself. And this then becomes the, uh, the, the challenge or the, 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 the main rebellion, if you will, of all of Genesis. This is disordered love 101. Cain is replacing worship of God. He's neglecting God, and he's replaced that with an obsession to make a name for himself. So by settling in Shinar, people are deliberately following in his footsteps. They're saying, you know what, Cain is the one who had it right. And they're following in his footsteps. Now let's look at verse 3 and 4 of chapter 11. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. There it is again. There's the rebellion. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the earth. Okay, so this is, again, where the rebellion against God is being systemized, is being organized, is being coordinated in the community. So here's the composite image. First of all, we have rebellion that's already residing in their hearts. They're, there's already an attitude. Like Cain, like Noah, like Ham, they're still infected with sin, and they're continuing to journey eastward instead of turning back to God. Next, the civilization is getting much more sophisticated. And we see that in this way. They're developing a new technology. A new technology. Wood-fired bricks. So there's, rebe there's rebellion in their hearts already, and then there's some new technology. Now, the technology can be used for good to advance God's kingdom, the first hospital or the first whatever, low-income housing or something like that. But instead, they use the bricks to initiate and impose their will. They're using the bricks, the new technology, to, to do what they will, not what God wills. Next, just notice how this is a rejection of God's command and also God's blessing. In Genesis 9, he said to multiply, fill the earth. Multiply, fill the earth. Instead, they're doing the exact opposite. We don't want to be scattered. Let's congregate in one place. Let's build a city instead. Again, this is open defiance, open disobedience. Now, in our culture, I think we are like a, a case study at how the rapid advancement of technology can actually result in even more chaos and even more disorder. And we see that through just the advent of things like hyper-intelligent generative AI and the advent of social media and the whole generation that follows. Now, I fully understand that lately I've kind of been sounding a little bit like a Luddite because I've been talking about this a lot, but genuinely I think that this is an issue that our culture has to face. John Tyson, who's an Australian pastor who leads a church in the heart of New York City, he once said this in a sermon. He said, we're living in a world where there has been 70 years of staggeringly effective technology that has designed to focus everything on the self. 
There's not even another way of thinking culturally. In other words, he's saying that technology is warping the human experience to be all about the self. And that is also the story of Babylon. So back to to Babel for a second. They have this new technology, and what is going to be the focal point, or what is going to be the center of the city that everything else is built around and oriented towards? Well, they want to build a tower made of these new bricks that reaches to the heavens. Now, right, uh, admittedly for us, this is kind of like an odd thing to be at the center of the city. But when you think about it, even our cities have distinct architecture that tells the story of what our civilization is actually about. Like, for example, the old mill, right? The old mill is ubiquitous to the Bend cityscape, if you can call Bend a cityscape. But, um, but think about what the old mill represents. Bend was originally founded as a blue-collar community whose primary industry was timber. Like this church, for example, was built with lumber that was milled right there at the old mill in 1940, but now it's been converted into a space where people who work for tech startups buy their ski gear. If that's not the story of Bend, I don't know what is. That's like, that's exactly it. So scholars agree that the the Tower of Babel is is, uh, the, the architecture in Babel is all oriented towards a vision of the good life. So scholars tell us that this is probably an early ziggurat, and a ziggurat looks like this. And in the ancient imagination, a ziggurat was reaching to the heavens so that God or the gods, uh, depending on your worldview or ideology, would come down from heaven and enter the temple that was normally right next to it. So that's the kind of the idea of the ziggurat. They would build it up to the heavens so the gods would come down, they would enter the temple, and then the people would come in to the temple for regular rhythms of worship. That's kind of the ancient imagination around the ziggurat. So again, what's so wrong with this idea that the Babylonians have? Well, first off, God commanded them to fill the earth and to take care of it, not to build a ziggurat, that's number one. And also, they have corrupt motives and ambition. So this is another piece of the composite image of when rebellion gets systemized and coordinated. They want to make a name for themselves. So the disordered love of Cain is being amplified in the people of Babel. And so I think what we're meant to see here, what we're meant to read between the lines of Scripture, is a cautionary tale about the dangerous progression of sin. It starts out in a certain way, and then it grows to something that's ferocious. I heard someone say recently that um, continuing in sin is like owning a baby tiger. It starts out cute and innocent, then it it ends up destroying and, and killing you. And I think that's a decent metaphor. So Cain on his own is operating in arrogance and built a city. But now in Babel, people are agreeing that arrogant ambition is the right idea. And it becomes an acceptable part of the cultural milieu. So they begin to build a civilization around making a name for themselves instead of depending on God. Uh, John Mark Comer in his book, uh, Garden City, writes, it, writes this. He says, I would argue that the desire to be great was put there by the creator himself. After all, we're made in his image and he's great. The problem is that this desire, which in its embryonic innocent state is so, so right, is quickly warped and soiled and bent out of shape by the ego. So we devolve from a desire to be great to a desire to be thought of as great. From a desire to serve the weak to a desire to be served 
by the weak, from a desire to save the world to a desire to have the world. In other words, the tragedy of Babel is that inner desire of the heart is being exposed as corrupt. They're rejecting God's blessing. They're saying, God, you can keep your blessing because they're jealous for his glory, right? Their attitude is, why settle for a blessing when if we play our cards right, we might be able to be like God and share in his glory ourselves. So this is the unholy ambition that's at the root of evil in the human heart and I think in the whole of scripture. Cornelius Plantinga Jr., who's an incredible scholar uh, in the Hebrew world, he wrote a book called A Breviary of Sin. And in it he writes about how in the biblical drama, sin is not what we often think that it is. We picture like the courtroom drama from the Reformation, but it's really in the biblical drama, sin is the will turned in on itself where the self, not God, is the locus point of authority. And now this is becoming known as the cult of self. We've replaced God and we've put ourselves in his place. That's the cult of self. And that is at its core uh, the, the, the heart of sin. So fortunately for us, Western culture has been cured of this, right? Actually, no, it's not, not right at all. Not right at all. In fact, our entire social economy and sense of self-worth is tied to our popularity that's measured by followers and likes. Let me say that again. Our entire social economy, sense of self-worth, is tied to our popularity measured by likes and followers. It doesn't actually feel like arrogance or pride anymore, does it? It actually feels like slavery to a toxic system. And that's actually the point of Babel. That's exactly what God is concerned about, and that's where this story is going. Scholars like Dr. Michael Heiser and Dr. John Walton and others who are much more qualified than me, they've correlated the Tower of Babel with other religious cultures of the day where ziggurats were common. And the ideology of the time was a sort of divine human quid pro quo, which we're going to call the divine quid pro quo. If we build a ladder for God where he'll come down from heaven and receive worship from us, then that's our offering and our gesture of goodwill towards him. And then, God is essentially obligated to us. We've got a God in our pocket, so to speak, or at least that's the ancient imagination. He'll protect us, he'll send us rain for our crops, we'll make us prosper, and, and so on. So the people um, of Babel and their initiative, it's, it's not actually true worship, even though at first glance it might seem that way. They actually want to make God come to them on their own terms. And I believe that this is like the origin story of false religion that we see all over the place. Um, and for all that's changed in the world since Babel, this spirit of false religion is still very present today. Um, and even in the church, I think there have been times where this idea of, of like making God come to us on our terms, we've made that true in Christian culture. And you may have picked up on this, like where there are people who are, a lot, are saying a lot of the right things about Jesus, but you can tell deep down there's a motivation that's there that might be corrupted, like a desire to make a name for themselves. So the spirit of religion is present when disobedience to God is being tolerated. There's a lot of initiative, there's lots of ambition, lots of drive, but not a lot of reverence or holy fear or desire for God, desire for his fame to become great in our nation, but to our name to become great in our nation. This is the spirit of false religion that has colonized a lot of our spirituality. But true worshipers are marked by trust, transformation of the heart, humble dependence on God, right? So, but 
as, but, but follow, the, but don't worry, like, like such an encouraging start to the talk, right? I, I know, we, we, this is like, this is the, 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 the dark side of the story, but there's a very hopeful thing that we end on here in just a minute, but hang with me, because as this sort of unholy ambition catalyzes in the hearts of the people of Babel, it's, it's, it's not just something that they are passively taking part in that's actually being catalyzed in their hearts, this sense of worshiping themselves and getting from God what they want and making him come to them on his terms or on their terms, what ends up happening is it, is it goes from a set of ideas and it goes from an ambition and it becomes a worldview. It becomes a worldview in the style of Cain. This is the lens that they're looking through now. And that's what happens in the city. So worldview is a set of belief that informs how we see ourselves in the world. And it's out of our worldview that we adopt a lifestyle. We, we adopt a set of behaviors. We adopt a set of habits. Like, so for example, for them, they wanted to be remembered. They wanted God to bless their agenda. We've decided, to, we've decided collectively that for us, it's okay. We're going to disregard a set of God's commands. And instead, we're going to do it our own way. And that, when that becomes the lens that you look through, it, it, it becomes very, very dangerous because that rebellion is becoming organized and catalyzed at this level. And then it becomes not just a worldview, but it becomes a toxic system. And this is where the cult of self takes on a life of its own. The tower that we built raises to the heavens and it's casting a shadow on the whole city. It cannot be ignored. It's pulling people in. So, the, world, so the, the ambition spreads to the community, becomes a worldview. It's the lens we look through, and then it's a toxic system. The, the, the tower suddenly can no longer be ignored. And this, this is an important lesson for us to learn because I think the same toxic system exists in our culture too. And I think one of the symptoms of that is this sort of chronic epidemic around anxiety and depression. And a lot of the reason for that is because we just have put so much pressure on ourselves to be the center of attention, to be the protagonist of the story. And as it turns out, we can't handle it. And it ends up producing all kinds of things in our hearts that we're not ready for and cannot handle. And this is precisely why God wants to come in and break up the toxic system, which is what he's about to do. So the cult of self is taking on a life of its own. It's drawing people in. So God knows. He, he foresees something that humanity couldn't see, which is the ultimate end of this rebellion, that the worldview and toxic system of the people ends up forming a society. It forms a society. So you see how this toxicity infects at every level of the culture. So imagine being a child who's born and discipled in this kind of culture. Imagine what that would be like. On your morning walk, you're going to school and you pass by the brick factory where your mom or your dad worked or something like that. And at the center of the city, the very epicenter of the world at the time, the tower is telling you a story. The tower is telling you a story about what life is actually about. What is success? What is meaning? How do you experience joy? Who or what do you hope in? Right? For the founders of the city, their rejection of God's blessing is deliberate, something that they chose. But for the children of that society, they're being formed from day one with a warped view of God. And this is what happens in a culture when we embrace the, uh, so, some of these realities, the cult of self and stuff like that. It ends up, it may be deliberate at some point, but then it becomes to become not, not deliberate at all. 
Uh, We're actually formed and warped in our view of God. And I, frankly, as a pastor, I feel like I see this all over the place. We expect God to bless our plans or something like that. And really what we're doing is we're rejecting the blessing of God. We're rejecting the promise of God. And we're, we're, we're asking God to, to, to meet us on a level that he did not agree to. The sad reality is that we're just missing out on the goodness that he has for us. Because we're looking for him other places. So you tell me, are we living in a similar time? Are we living in a similar time? to the Tower of Babel. Is there a Tower of Babel in our day? Let me just propose a few possible examples. Number one, Silicon Valley. You might see here on the screen behind me just like all of these different brands that are all vying for a name for themselves and the end is wealth and consumption. Maybe, perhaps, Times Square. This might be another form of the Tower of Babel. You see all of the names that are in big and bright letters that are growing higher and higher. The building's getting higher and higher. Does that smack of, does that speak of to you what is going on in Babel? Also, you might picture this. This is a... This next image is an image of Metallica. At one point, probably the biggest rock band in the world. In 1991, they played Moscow to a group of 1.6 million people. It's hard to see here because the image is grainy, but it's a stage in the center of a sea of people with aircrafts like helicopters flying around and four men on stage are being worshipped. This is the tallest skyscraper in the world in the United Arab Emirates. And already there are plans in other countries to build towers that go higher even than Barj Khalifa. Here's another example possibly of the Tower of Babel in our day. 40% of Gen Z say that what they want to do when they grow up is to be an influencer. They want their name to be known. They want to make their living online by likes and followers. Finally, I was finding it really difficult because there's like another layer to this that I see in our culture. And I think that our culture is hoping in putting our trust in uh, technology in many ways um, as like a modern tower of Babel. And I was trying to figure out what's a good image and I was searching Google image for an image that would work to kind of represent that. I couldn't really find anything. But then a couple nights ago, I was hanging out with my friend Greg at a friend's birthday party, and he was showing me this new app on his phone that generates completely original art through an AI, AI like thing, whatever. I don't even understand it. Um, but all you have to do is like put in a few like thought, like a few keywords, and it like spits out like four hyper realistic, you know, generated like all original. Uh, artwork. And so he asked me, hey, what would you like want to create an image of? And I said, well, I'm teaching on the Tower of Babel. So the Tower of Babel, dystopian in a neoclassical style. And literally 30 seconds later, this is what came up. This is an entirely AI generated, completely original piece of art that was done in 30 seconds on an app on our phone. I think these things are telling us a story. And the story 
is actually vying for your allegiance, your trust, and your hope. And I think that that's the story of Babel. I think it's a tragic story. So think about what is the story that this image is trying to tell you or these images are trying to tell you. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's, let's do it our own way. Forget God's blessing. Let's go after glory. Forget God's blessing. Let's go after We want to be king. We want to be protagonist. And I would argue this way of thinking has colonized our worldview and it's become a toxic system with a life of its own. In other words, I don't think we can even really think clearly culturally any other way than what all of those composite images have taught us to think. Like John Mark and others have said, our culture is like a formation machine that is aggressively shaping us into its image, not God's image, its own image. So, it's a lot of stuff. And again, like I said, kind of a, a, a tragic picture. The, the story of Tower of Babel is a, is, a, is a tragic cautionary tale. So how does God respond? What does God do? Well, the most gracious thing God can do in this kind of a toxic system is disrupt the culture. Think about it. How does God go forward? How does God act? How is he going to move in a place like this? Well, he's got to disrupt the culture and unseat the rival gods. And this is how he does it. The Lord God came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So come, let us go down, confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. So, like, let's rescue this back, I think, from like the cynical Western modernist view. This is actually God, again, with mercy and patient love and profound wisdom, acting, intervening to prevent people from creating a toxic culture. He's essentially saying, listen, you do not know the danger of the path that you're going down, the unintended consequences of your persistent rebellion and the culture that you create will cause irreparable damage to your heart. It'll cause irreparable damage to your children's heart and their hearts as well. So I'm going to intervene in order to save you from yourself. So this is the intervention of God as an act of love to rescue us from the cult of self. That's exactly what's going on here um, in, in the story of the Tower of Babel. God is, is coming to disrupt the culture. So for all of our initiative and for all of our ambition and all of our self-actualization, the hopeful conclusion of the story is that in the end, God's will is still done. In the end, God's will is still done. Notice they intend to disobey and disregard God's command by coming together and forming a city, building the tower, and all of that. But what ends up happening is God, by his grace, is disrupting the culture, and they end up being scattered anyways. So this is the beauty of, of God being sovereign and being full of power, is that in the end, God gets done what he wants done. The people of the earth are scattered. So that scattering is uh, God preparing the world, or preparing the way, if you will, for his own initiative. So essentially what he's doing here is, hey guys, uh, you, you've, you've sought to make a name for yourself. I'm stopping that. 
because of how tragic it would be for you and how destructive it would be for your heart. I'm stopping that and I'm preparing the way for my own initiative. I'm preparing the way for, for, to pioneer my own way to relationship back to you. So he's saying he's going to make a covenant with Abraham's family. That comes next week, Genesis chapter 12. God calls and blesses a family to spread the goodness of God throughout the world. That's coming next. But in order to prepare the way for that, he had to scatter the people of Babel. So he's saying, no, 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 I'm not doing a relationship on your terms. I'm still God here. I'm not doing a relationship on your terms. I'm doing a relationship on my terms. That's what God is saying. So essentially, um, in, in, uh, in, in John Tyson's book, Beautiful Resistance, which is fantastic, by the way, he, he writes this, that under the shepherding of our culture, our souls are destroyed. But under the care of the good shepherd, our souls will be restored. So under the shepherding of culture, our souls are destroyed. Under the shepherding or the care of the good shepherd, our souls are restored. In other words, what, what John Tyson and I believe the scriptures here are teaching is that relationship with God on our terms, trying to get our way, forcing our will, making ourselves the protagonist, the center of the story, it leads no place good. But when we instead submit to the leadership and the authority of God and we listen and pay attention to him and we submit ourselves to his will, we're actually restored. It's actually what's best for us. I think this is one of the biggest lies about disobedience is that disobedience and sin is fun. It actually ends up leading down a road of complete and utter destruction. But obedience to God, he's not about robbing your fund. Obedience to God is actually about living the most full, best life that you possibly could. I wholeheartedly believe in my heart that the best thing for your life is to obey God with everything in you and to leave nothing behind but to, to follow him in every way. So this is God's love and his grace and his mercy intervening in, uh, in, in a time of, of great uh, rebellion. Now, um, much later in the biblical story, this is how we end, much later in the biblical story, the story of Babel is actually completely reversed at Pentecost. Notice, notice what happens at Pentecost. Right, so Babel starts this way. They're centered on the wrong thing, the wrong object of worship. And they initiate all of these corrupt agendas in order to be the center of the story. And so God confuses their language and he disperses them. But at Pentecost, which is after Jesus rises from the dead and Jesus launches his church, it's the exact opposite. Jesus is revealed as the true central figure of all of history, the true object of worship, the one that's truly worthy of real worship. And then it's God's agenda that's being advanced here. It's not human's agenda, it's God's agenda. And his agenda is to rescue and save through his great love. And then it's through the Spirit where everyone understands the good news in their own native tongue. You remember that in Acts chapter two, people from all different tribes and nations are there in Jerusalem at the time. They speak all kinds of different languages and when the spirit of God comes, the people of God are able to share the good news in everyone's native tongue. So where there was confusion before, now God is bringing clarity. And then finally, God brings them together. He's not scattering them, he's actually bringing people together in the believing community. So essentially what we see is God, through Jesus, is accomplishing what the people at, the, at Babel had attempted to do, but it's, it's redeemed, it's whole, it's beautiful, it's how God truly designed. So here's how we end. We end with this question, how do we thrive in a city like Babel? Well, first of all, it's just about getting the dynamics right, getting the truth right. 
When we seek to make our own way, it's doomed to fail. But when we follow Jesus in his way, and when we decide that we're actually going to trust in him, we're going to worship him, we're going to call upon his name, then we are actually saved and restored. It's, it's, the, it's the beautiful story that we all long for. It's the salvation that we hope for. So essentially what we want to do is we want to live this life of, of beautiful resistance, what John Tyson calls beautiful resistance, in a city like Babel, in an empire that's corrupt and secular. Man, we want to, we want to beautifully resist, not in a spirit of antagonism, but in a spirit of faithfulness and loyalty to God. We want to resist, right? So by that, we just mean this, that you're focused on the power of the gospel. This is your orientation in life. And the absolute aim of your life is that Christ would be formed in you and that over the course of your life, you will be rid from the cult of self. You will daily rid yourself of that corrupt desire to, um, to, for the cult of self to rule in your heart and instead for Christ to rule in your heart. One of my favorite uh, stories from the last hundred or so years of church history is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is, um, by all accounts, just an incredible theologian, a spiritual giant, uh, 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 an academic, um, probably once in a generation or so. And he lived uh, as a German man, and he lived uh, during the Third Reich, right as um, uh, Hitler and, and uh, the Nazis were beginning to um, spread across the world and, and dominate through force. And he had taken this post at Yale the- Theology School here in the United States and was distanced from all of it, but um, in a moment of just utter radical obedience, decided to move back uh, to where he was from in Germany and form a little theology school there. This is where some of the greatest books of, of the last hundred years have been written. The, the book Life Together, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, uh, top 10 reads, if you ask me, uh, other than the Bible. These were written in this little small community of Jesus followers in a theological school that he started um, outside, of, uh, outside of Germany. And so in, in, as he is beginning to uh, shape and form this community, uh, he is exposed to Hitler and his war machine and how they're spending um, an equivalent of billions of dollars and all of this energy and resource and time is being orchestrated and architected and carefully done in order to dominate the world through a corrupt form of violence. And he's sort of standing watching this go on off in the distance and he's saying, man, our way of life, it has to be stronger than that. It has to be stronger than that. If God's kingdom will come, we have to be resilient in a time that is very violent. And so he formed this little band of quite radical followers of Jesus, and they ended up giving their life because they were nonviolent. And they wouldn't go get along with the agenda of Hitler. And he ended up being killed for that. Another story from the scriptures that I think is equally as powerful, King Josiah. His dad was a very corrupt king and they had built all of these high places. Essentially, like rival gods were being worshipped in Israel. And Josiah comes to power and he realizes what his father has done. And rather than leave the high places intact... He spends his army's resources to demolish all of the high places and to restore true worship in Israel once again. These were considered to be quite wild and out there tasks 
and responsibilities in their day, both with Bonhoeffer and King Josiah. But they found it necessary for them to rid themselves of these rival kingdoms and these rival gods and to worship God, worship the one true God, worship King Jesus in his place. So to, to us, what does that mean? It means we need a counter, an intentional counter formation. We need to not just go with the stream of culture. We actually need to like, exist as exiles, exist as a minority in a culture like a Babylon, and we need to be formed into Jesus' image instead. So began today with, I think, a, a scripture that really helps us put this into practice. First, or 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. And we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words, what we need is a pattern and a lifestyle where we practice contemplating the Lord's glory. We replace the images of culture. We replace the ambition, the worldview of our culture and we replace it with what the scripture teaches, which is a contemplation and a desire and a hunger for worshiping God alone. So daily we give our heart to pray to Jesus in praise and thanksgiving. Daily we immerse ourselves in the truth and wisdom of the scripture. Daily and weekly and monthly we participate in the rhythms of community so that our values are being shaped not by social media, and not by some of the other corrupt systems in which we are a part of in our culture, but our, 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 our lifestyle and our way is actually being formed instead by the things that have been laid out by Jesus in the scripture. So this is our, this is our goal and our ambition, is to rid ourselves of the cult of self and to stay resolutely focused on King Jesus as the one who is the only one who is able to save. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and let's pray together. So, Father, we just want to say thank you so much for your kindness and your decision to act, to intervene when we need you to intervene. The reality is, God, is that if we were to go our own way, if we were to architect our own system, our own rhythms of worship, with us at the center of it, it would lead to destruction. We try and reach you on our own. It's, it's, it ends in destruction. But when we turn our hearts, when we turn our eyes to you, we recognize, you know what? We don't have to have our own initiative. You have taken it upon yourself to make a way for us to experience relationship with you again. And you have done that through Jesus. We, can, we confess our idols. We confess the temptation to make a name for ourselves. We confess our temptation to follow in the way of the world that is teaching us more, bigger, better. Cults of pride, cults of self, cults of greed. We recognize that that's all just the same old stuff. It's the same old rebellion. 
It's still going my own way. It's still traveling east, away from Eden. And it is not what you had in mind for us. It is not the way that things are supposed to be. So we pray that you would find us here with our hearts fully yours. No affection for the things of the world, no affection or loyalty to any tower of Babel. But we pray that you would find our hearts just like fully enraptured and, 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 and fully devoted to you and to your way, Jesus. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for being determined to bless us and thank you for your great wisdom. I just wanna encourage anyone here who is feeling like, oh man, yeah, I, I think I have been walking, walking pretty far east. I think I've been doing this my own way. I think I've been trying to figure it out for myself. I don't like where it's leading. I don't like where it's going. So the response is very simple. It's just to turn back to the Lord. It's a yielding, it's a submitting to him. It's just saying, okay, God, I've tried my way. Clearly that's not right. I want your way. I want your initiative. I want relationship with you on your terms. next song we're going to sing just speaks beautifully to that exact thought, that exact idea. So if I'm speaking to you today and you're the one who's like, yeah, 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 me too. I'm feeling that. I encourage you to just sing these songs as a proclamation of your faith in him, the great I am, not, not the great Andrew or the great Riverbend or the great Phil or the great whomever. Like, like forget the other names. We're not idolizing, we're not elevating anyone but you, Jesus. So let's turn our hearts to him in praise and in worship.